So my name's Tony. Welcome to Wellspring. It's so good to have you guys here this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, we're super glad you're here. If you've been here for 50 years, we're glad you're here too. Uh, it's fun to have you. All right, so if you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, Claire and Miss Jeannie are over there. They would love to hang out with you. It'll be super fun, believe me. Jeannie's my wife. She's really good at this, so hang out with her. She's super fun. All right, so we're in the midst of a series. It's called Unforced Rhythms of Grace. It's based on this idea of what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? What does it look like to lean into the person of Jesus and try and take his yoke upon us? If you remember in Matthew 11, we read this, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. So we're leaning in this series into what does it look like to take that yoke on us, to learn from Jesus. Dude, that was awesome. I love that. That was the first pew hop I've seen. That was epic. That was awesome. Sorry, I just totally lost it. All right. So the yoke. Okay, so Eugene Peterson has this great translation of the message, verse 29. He says this, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So sometimes when you talk about practicing the way of Jesus, we feel like, you know what, I just really need to try harder. Like what I really need to do is just ramp up, rock it. But if you've tried that for long enough, it generally does not work. Right? So usually you try it for a few weeks, you try harder, then you burn out, you give up, and maybe you try again next year. Sort of like how we do the gym usually in the United States, right? First two weeks, we stop, pay for the year, shoot, I just wasted all this money, I'll try again next January for two weeks, burn out and start again. So our hope in this series is not necessarily to get us to try harder, but to let go at a Jesus' way. Right? That we would be a people that let go more fully into Jesus' way that we would let go and let him shape our path more fully and that through that process of letting go and learning Jesus' rhythms, that we might actually become a people that are infused and transformed by his grace. Now this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this idea of community. Now, one of the things about community is it's awkward to have a conversation or a talk or a sermon about community where one person is talking and you don't get to. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple awkward things during this message, like maybe talk to the person next to you. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to actually ask you to ante in for one second and talk to someone next to you. I want you to do something the church has done for a very long time. We don't do it all the time, but I want you to try it today. Throughout church history, there's always often been a moment where someone would turn to the person next to them and they'd say, the peace of Christ be with you. So what I want you to do is just turn to someone next to you, tell them your name, and say, the peace of Christ be with you. Go. Peace be with you. And with you. Dude, that was awesome. (laughs) 
before you get too comfortable, I'm going to rein you back in. Rein you back in. One of the reasons we have time after where we have like this feast out here is to hang out and chat with each other. So now you know someone's name at least and they've said something nice to you so you can chat with them after. Now you have permission. All right, I want to start this morning with a story. So there's this guy named D.L. Moody. He lived from, I think it was 1839 to 1899. He's an evangelist. He's a writer. He's a preacher. He's a revivalist. He's all these things. One day, this guy comes up to him and is like, all right, all right, Mr. Moody. I, I believe that someone can be a Christian without being connected to the Christian community. And they're meeting in this, uh, like, cool house with this fire, and it's this epic, awesome place. And he's given Moody the best presentation he can. He's smart. This dude's smart. And he's like, hey, believe me, I want to tell you my theory here. And he's sitting there trying to convince Moody, okay, you can be a Christian without being a part of the church, without a part of a, a living body of believers. And Moody, uh, he's sort of sitting there, he's listening, and then he grabs a pudding hot coal over by the fireplace. And he takes this poker and he grabs this burning hot coal. And he takes it and he sits back down and he puts it between him and this other guy. And he just sits there, super awkward. And the guy stops talking because there's a burning coal in his face. And the guy says, okay, Mr. Moody, And the coal, slowly, as it's out of the fire, starts to lose its fire. And gradually, it just becomes a coal that is no longer hot. He says, okay, Mr. Mooney, I get your point. And his point was this. We can no longer be, no more be formed in the image of Jesus outside of Christian community than a coal can stay hot, aflame with fire, outside of a fire. I was on a walk this week and just random, I was walking my dog in the woods, random, ran to this guy and he, we started chatting and I don't know how this came up, sort of just, I guess, God. And he starts telling me, no, 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 you, you know what? I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't, I don't go to church. I don't believe in community. It's like totally preordained for this sermon, right? <laughs> so it's just telling me, you know, I believe in Jesus. That's all that matters. And I listened to him. And I started thinking about, hey, you know, this is totally not just something that Moody and right, are called over 100 years ago. This is the air we breathe. Right? Our cultural moment is all about the individual getting the individual's needs met, independent of community participation. And there's some advantages of that. But this morning, what I want to lean into is what does it look like for us to be a biblical community? What does it look like for us to participate together? Now, I want to just say at the outset, this is a little different than like the picture presented in pop culture. So in pop culture, what you generally see is a bunch of hipsters in a backyard with fair trade coffee and cool vintage lights and everyone's having fun and smiling. Right? And the picture is, hey, if you just spend time with people, you're going to have like these awesome, cool friends. They're going to be the best friends forever and they'll probably, you'll be high-fiving them for the rest of your life. And I just want to say that I think the picture presented uh, in pop culture of community is a little different than a biblical model. And I just want to do a quick doodle here just to kind of tease this out. So let's see. Let me find the right color. Let's just do black. All right. So the picture presented of community centers around the individual. What the individual does, the individual says, all right, you know what? I really like this person. 
So I'll have them be a part of my community. And you know what? I really know I gotta have them. I'm gonna have them be a part of my community. Oh, and this person, oh, I gotta have them be a part. And this person too. And then what we say is this is someone's community. The individual has determined based on their likes and dislikes who they wanna hang out with and says, these are my friends. Now there's no necessary, that these people don't actually have to know each other. Really, the center of the community is this person, like spokes on a wheel, they're connected to these other people. And if you have a couple of those connections, you have community, right? That's what our culture says. The biblical model is a little different. This we're going to lean in today, but I thought I'd give you a visual to start with. The biblical model doesn't start with the human person. It starts with the person of Jesus. You have the person of Jesus. As people encounter the person of Jesus, they draw near to him. Now, these people might not even like each other. In fact, if you get enough of them, they will not all like each other. <laughs> that is the way it works. And as these people hang out around the person of Jesus, they are shaped into Jesus' image. They become a witness to the world of what community and what Jesus is all about. It does not center on the individual and his or her preferences in the world. It centers on the cross and a community image, whether they are trying to be shaped into Jesus' image, and as they are shaped as a community into his image, whether they like each other or not, but they love each other, they become a witness in the world of who God is. Now, to lean into this, I want to start in the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with creation, right? So you have creation, and what happens? Day one, God makes some cool stuff. What does he say? It's good. Tov, Hebrew, right? It's tov, that's good. Day two, what happens? He makes more stuff. Then what does he say? That's good. You're getting it. Hebrew, you probably even know Hebrew. What does he say? It's tov, right? Day three, what happens? It's good. Day four, it's good. Day five, it's good. Day six, it's good. You get to day seven, it's no longer good. It's now Tov Maod. It's really good. Everything is awesome. It's going great. Which makes verse 18 of chapter 2 so unbelievably important. Verse 18, chapter 2 says, After making Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. The first thing in all creation to not be good is for the human creature to be alone. Commentary says this. G.J. Wenham in the Word Biblical Commentary says this. The divine observation that something was not right with man's situation is startling. See, God had the ability, creating all things, to promote individualism. He had the perfect opportunity Adam is there. He could have made a planet for Adam. He could have made 10 planets with 10 atoms, and they could have had their own space. They had ultimate freedom, no limitations, no people annoying them or pulling them in the wrong direction, right? And yet he doesn't. There's so many options. And actually, by making Adam incomplete on his own, he actually underlines the fact that humans are not meant to be alone. And then he says this, I will make a, suit, a helper suitable to him, right, Genesis 2.18. Now, 
Now, historically, this has been sort of warped and interpreted in really funky ways. This does not mean that Eve is weaker. This is really important to say, because what we see as you go through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, who is the primary helper in the Bible? God. This very word that is used to describe Eve is the very word that God adopts Himself to describe Himself in the Bible. Psalm 70, Psalm 1, God. 24, Psalm 146, Hosea 13. Who is the helper? God. So helper cannot mean someone who is sort of weaker than Adam. What does this mean? It means that Adam's strengths are not complete on their own. They are insufficient on their own. So what does he need? He needs another being with compatible strengths that creates community, and in this, humans can flourish. When they are in community, relying not just on their own strengths, but the strengths of others, they flourish. Now, the truth is, if you go throughout the entire Bible, God had all kinds of opportunities to promote individualism. Think about it. He meets Abraham. He says, Abraham, you know what? Let's hang out. Why don't you and I just do our own little thing, meet in a coffee shop, you know, fry some lamb or whatever it would be. Let's just do it on our own. But he doesn't do that, does he? He says, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to form a people. I'm going to form a community through you. And God has another opportunity. Right? He meets this guy named Moses. He's in the desert through a burning bush. He could have just said, Moses, Moshe, let's just hang out in the desert. There's no one here. But he doesn't. What does he do? He sends Moses back to the people of Israel. He then rescues them together, forms a people with laws, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you land, and you guys can live as a nation together. And then when we get to exile and judgment, what happens? It's not like God is like, you're good, you're bad. You're good, you're bad. What happens? The entire community goes into exile. You get to the New Testament. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I really like you, Peter. Like, why don't you and I just hang out? He doesn't do that. He forms a little group, community of 12 people to reconstitute the people of Israel to form a community so they can be God's people together in the world. And you see this from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And I want to pick out two passages in particular in the New Testament where we can kind of lean in a little bit. Uh, the first is 1 Corinthians 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is where Paul talks about how does the body function. And he says, the church, the community of Christians, it functions like a body. And this is what he writes. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Right? We are a community of people that are different. And it's actually through our difference that we come together and are one. Body is one, not... Uh, he's a really excellent scholar. He says this. The body is one not despite its diversity, but is one body only by virtue of its diversity. Without that diversity, the body would be a monstrosity. Our family went to a uh, pumpkin patch uh, a few weeks ago, and my son was fascinated by getting a uh, face painting. So what he got was a monstrosity. He got this 
uh, spider that was basically a huge eyeball on the front with a few legs. That is a monstrosity. That's what happens when the entire body tries to be the same thing, or you try and find a body of just legs and eyes. All right, I'm going to do another one of those awkward participation moments. So my son, Josiah, is in kindergarten, and he has an awesome teacher, Miss Kelly. And Miss Kelly does this amazing thing. She has the kids, when they do something well, she has them look at each other and be like, you're so smart, back and forth. So I'm going to have you do something super awkward. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, God made you uniquely gifted. Go. All right, come back, come back, come back before you enjoy it too much. But I just want to say, can I just say, when's the last time someone said that to you? So often we come into churches and we feel like we all need to be the same. That's not actually how God made the body. God made every single person in this room with a unique and amazing gift and contribution to bring to this body. He didn't make you to do it on your own. He made you to flourish uniquely, relying on the people in this room to flourish. Every single one of you was made uniquely by God to bring something incredible to the table that only you can bring. Only you. Right? And when we echo back now to Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone. We start to see why. All of our strengths are not adequate in and of themselves. We actually need each other's strengths to flourish. Verse 21, Paul writes, The head cannot, I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Moody says to the guy in the room, You need the church. Right? It is not good for man to be alone. God created us to flourish in interdependent community and relationship. Verse 18, Paul says this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who brings us together that we can depend on one another, that we as a gathered community can be a witness in the world. This is God's design, not yours, not mine. This isn't based on our preferences. It's not based on our likes. It is based on the formation and the calling and the design of God. And it's as we do this, as we meet around the cross, as we come together to be shaped into Jesus' image, as we love people we do not like, we become a body. Paul gets to verse 26. And this is what happens if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together 
having participated low of this text is pivotal. You don't get to verse 26 without having participated, given yourself as only you can into the functioning fabric of the body. And it's when you do that that you get to verse 26 and people suffer with you, they rejoice with you, they go through the ups and downs of life because life is not always easy. That's how the New Testament describes how the body functions. But I want to also look at, so what is the goal of the body, right? We talk about here they gathered around the cross and that they are formed in the image of Jesus to be a witness in the world. I want to look at just before Jesus ascends, right? So he's resurrected just before he ascends. He actually says this to his people, to this little gathered community of these disciples, he says this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Too often though, at this point, what we assume is that he is speaking to the individuals and that somehow these individuals are sent out to all the points of the globe at that very moment, right? It's like, oh, this is, he's speaking to the individuals, which I think is true, but really he's speaking to the group and that this gathered group of people, this church, this community is Acts 2, witnesses in the world. And the reason we know this is because of how in Acts 2, the author describes the community. This is how he describes them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together in, and had everything in common. They sold prep property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now I want to say this. So much to say here, uh, and we've given sermons on this text in the past, but just to say this. Their witness, right? People were added to their numbers every day that were being saved was not the individuals going out and sharing their, God, their little, uh, their testimony, though I think that did happen. The primary way the author of Acts is describing the witness of the church is through their shared life. They're meeting in homes, they're breaking bread, they're worshiping together. Right? They're studying the scriptures together. They as a body are functioning as a community and this witness is a Jesus. Testimony in the world that leads people back to Jesus. Sounds to me when you read the gospel, when you read Acts, that people took Jesus' words pretty seriously. That's what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. All right, so what do we see here? I think three things in particular stand out. One, God created humans to flourish in relationship. Two, he formed the people of Israel and the church to be an interdependent community. We were not designed to do this on our own. And three, right, this community is meant to be his witness in the world. And yet, the gravity of our culture pushes against this with all of its force. Right, so when you come in this morning, right, like 
there's, a, I think, a number of questions that might pop in your head. Like, I think one that comes into my head is, well, what about my needs? Right? So this gets at, I think, some of this tension that we have up here. Right? So on the left, what you see is the humans is in the middle, right? It's based on his or her needs. She determines who her friends are and then forms her community, right? And that's sort of the dominant my needs. I think that's true, right? We do have real needs. The question is, how are they met? And what Jesus, I think, would push on this a little bit is we don't gather together as the body of Jesus because we like one another. We gather together as the body of Jesus because we love Jesus and we want to be shaped into his likeness. And the idea is, as we do this, as we give ourselves to Jesus to be shaped in his likeness, what happens? We actually form deep friendships. Right? This is verse 26, right? People suffer with us. People rejoice with us. But when we invert that, things get really funky. People start using the church to meet their own needs rather than as a place of worship and transformation into Jesus' image. Two, what about my freedom? Right? Like it's not just about my needs, it's also about my freedom. And in our cultural moment, right, constraint is the enemy. Anything that limits freedom in our context is seen as bad. Right? This is, this is FOBO, right? Fear of the better off. The fear of missing out. It's like, man, I don't want to limit anything. I want to keep my options open. And you know what people do? You know what committing to a community does? It really limits you. It does. So what does Jesus have to say into this? I think Jesus would say, actually, constraint is not bad. And that true freedom, true freedom is the right constraints that shape us into Jesus' likeness. Right? Because what is the goal? Is the goal ultimate freedom or is the goal transformation? And actually constraint, limiting freedom is a part of our transformation process. Consider this. A musician. So a musician does not become a great musician by saying, I want to keep my options open. It doesn't happen that way. Actually, a musician, if she wants to be amazing, actually has to introduce constraint. Practice. Practice is essentially saying, I'm not going to do everything, I am going to do this. And it is actually by introducing constraint that she actually becomes the musician that God designed her to be. She actually gets to enter into true freedom of expressing who she is, which she couldn't do unless she introduced constraint and limited freedom. What does it look like? And essentially, that is what we we're talking about in this whole series. What does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? How do we introduce constraints, rhythms, practices, habits that shape us into Jesus' image? Yeah, they decrease our freedom, they do. But they get us something better. Our full flourishing of self in the person of Jesus. What about growth? 
right? So you have needs, you have freedom, and then growth, right? So in our cultural moment, one of the things growth, I feel like, often is presented at is like learning. So lear- growth is often framed as learning. So I'm going to le- listen to a podcast, I'm going to watch this YouTube video, I'm going to read this article, probably not a book, books are too long, um, but, or the accumulation of experience, Right, so then growth is primarily then seen as information or accumulating cool adventures and experiences. This is how we grow. Right? This is almost exclusively how it happens. Oh, I'm a growing person. I traveled here. I did this. I had this new adventure. And for Jesus, that's not exactly how he frames growth. Right? Growth is about being transformed into his image. And the truth is, When you or I, when we encounter the person of Jesus, we are saved, we are rescued, we are not perfected. And we come into this group of people with, we come into this, we come into this group of people with character defects, we come into this group of people with all kinds of brokenness and sin. And Jesus actually gave us the church, he gave us this community so that we could grow. The truth is, wounds almost always happen in relationship, and Jesus almost always uses relationships to heal us of our wounds. When I first encountered the person of Jesus, I had just this overwhelming sense of God's goodness and mercy and grace for me. But I carried a lot of brokenness into the church. I remember the first time I met with some of these guys on my football team, and they just wanted to hang out with me. I literally said to them the first time, talk about like defended and insecure. I was just like, you know, I've never been friends with a Christian. I probably won't ever be. That was literally the, I mean, that's literally the first thing I said to these guys. And the truth is, that's how I felt. Because I had been hurt so many times in relationship, there was no way I was going to let this group of people hurt me again. But God used this group of people over a period of years to be one of the most beautiful and healing experiences of my life that has actually continued through the ups and downs of participating in church or exempted from that, right? Because we all carry our brokenness into the room. None of us are exempted from that. So we hurt each other. But also if we stick at it long enough, I think God does incredible healing and transformation in us through the body of believers that are gathered. How do we grow? Sure, we can grow by learning. We can grow by reading a book. We can grow by having an adventure. But I think the deepest growing that we do is often happens in relationship with one another over time. What about my needs? What about my freedom? What about growth? The thing that's true is if you actually look at our cultural moment, our our Culture does not do community well. And this is actually proving more and more true as studies after studies come out about loneliness in the United States. There was a study recently that was done of 20,000 people ages 18 and over, and this is what they found. 46% of people feel alone. Nearly half of the people feel alone. 27 feel as though, 27% feel as though there are people who really understand them. That means 75% of people feel like no one understands them. 43% feel as though their relationships are not meaningful. 43% feel isolated from others. And when you look at the stats, college student Gen Z is the highest on all of these. 
Right? Gen Z is college students right now, high schoolers right now. They have the highest loneliness scores of any generation. So what's happening is you're watching as we have bought in to our cultural narrative on community and meaning, where you're experiencing more and more isolation and loneliness. Because of this trend, and this is not a joke actually, uh, in Great Britain they just formed the first ever Minister of Loneliness. Because it has such such a significant thing and it's affecting their culture so much they've actually created a ministerial position to figure out what do we do about this? This is not an anecdote. This is like massively influencing people's lives. So what we see then is that actually how we do church, how we do community, is not only about our felt needs, it's actually about our witness in the world. I think there's actually a profound opportunity right now. If we can figure out how do we do community well, I think we can have a profound witness into our community and into the world. As Jesus forms us together, we experience the togetherness that he hopes for. We actually can have a profound witness into the lonely world that we are walking into. We're not in like order, what are some practices? What are some things we can do? I have a couple. They're not in like order of priority, uh, but I think there are three things that we really should consider. The first is this. I really think we need to figure out how to prioritize the large gathering. Right, so it's this. Now, that might be an odd thing to start with. You're like, but this is the, probably the least like, relationally connective space that we do here at Wellspring, Tony. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But it's also something the church has been doing from day one. The church has gathered on Sunday morning to worship God, submit their lives to the scriptures from the very beginning. Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday morning and the church has gathered on Sundays to say, Jesus is where life is. But if you look at stats, you'll see this trend is shifting, right? And I think it was 1924, uh, the Olympics were held, right? And this guy named Little was super fast and he ran the 100 meters. And he actually said, you know what? I'm not gonna run. It's on a Sunday morning. It's his best event. He said, I'm not gonna do it. Pretty big deal, right? You go to our current moment now and you see nationally, across the nation, churches are wondering, huh, what's going on here? At one time, Sunday morning was like, we're here every week. Now it's like getting down, even the most committed, right? It's getting to like maybe one to two times a month. This is becoming, they can do other things. This is affluence, right? As people get wealthier, they have more options, right? So they can do other things. This gets into sports and other sports commitments, right? With families. I know, you know, people are like, but I have this tournament. I have this thing to go to, right? So there's all these pulls on us. And yet this is the only time as a body that we gather as a big body and we together submit our lives to Jesus. We sing songs. We lay the scriptures before us in this space and say, all right, are we going to be a people who are willing to surrender our lives to Jesus? The only time we as a big body do this. It's also, I think, a profound and really important disruptive witness in our world because there is no other group of people that are willing to gather together like this and say, you know what? No, no, we're just going to worship someone else. 
Like our moment culturally is all about worshiping us and our needs and our wants and what we want to do in the world. There are very few things that we can do as a large body to say, you know what, it's not about me and that's why I go on Sunday. It's this profound disruptive witness that we can actually do as a large community in our culture. Prioritize Sunday morning. I also think though, there's not just this space but also participating in a smaller community. Right, this is, is a little less religious. This is where a lot of like discipleship actually happens. Right, this space is a little less relational, but it's in that space where we bear one another's burdens. This is where we get to hear others' ideas, not just one person standing on the stage. Right, we get to wrestle back and forth and say, "Well, I think this, I think that," and we go, "How do we figure this out?" This is where we actually work together about what does it look like for us to be shaped into Jesus' image, that we can be His witnesses in the world. And this can be formal structures or informal. Right? If you're at CSUMB, this is participating maybe in a local community on your campus. If you're in a part of this body and you want to be a part of one of our groups, right? that's the well communities. But I, there's no reason that five or six people can't gather together and figure out how do we practice the way of Jesus wherever we are. I would also say, though, that I think we need to figure out ways to nurture intimate relationships, too. Right? This is why we talk about ABLE all the time. Right? ABLE is our discipleship acronym. Right? A-B-L-E. A is to stand every week, let's take time to attend to the speaking voice of God. B, let's bless people. Right? So what would it be like to nurture relationships by being a blessing to people in this room? You could take a risk for that. L is learn from the scriptures. E is eat, taking time to eat with people. I think one of the best ways to nurture relationship and community, you know, over to your another. Inviting someone in this room, maybe someone you said peace of Christ to, you know, over to your house and saying, let's get to know each other. Tell me your story. Let me tell you mine. You have the large community, you have smaller communities, and you have nurturing intimate relationship. And I think my invitation to you today Right? I realize we're all overcommitted, we're all busy, this is all, for many of us, overwhelming. I think my thing is this, what does it look like for you to shrink the change? So, you can't do everything tomorrow. Impossible. Don't try. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to say, okay, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to change everything tomorrow. Don't do it. I want you to pick one thing. What is one small change you can make to move deeper into the person of Jesus through this gathered community? What is one thing you can do to knit your life a little more deeply with this group so that you can be shaped into Jesus' image? One thing. Maybe it's saying, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna prioritize being here on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's you come regularly and you're like, you know what, but I, I run out of here right after and instead you're gonna say, all right, I'm gonna hang out with people. I'm gonna take the risk to hang out with people in here. Or maybe you've gotten to know a couple people you haven't had anyone over to your house. Maybe it starts with, oh, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to clean up my house and I'm going to say that it is all grace. <laughs> or don't clean up your house and accept that it is all grace <laughs> and have them over anyway. Or maybe it's finding a community of people that you can journey with. Now, if one of the things we're trying to do in this series is also speak to families. So we have this thing called Able Kids. And I think our able kids sort of challenge is, if you're a family and you have little kids, maybe ask your kids, like, what is, what is one thing, a family that they enjoy being with? 
then find a time to spend time with that family together as a family. Maybe you go to the park, maybe you grab dinner, maybe you do a potluck, maybe you just play in the playground after service. But take one step. I want to invite the the worship team up here. Uh, As we sort of enter into worship, I think I just want to ask us the question of like, what holds you back? Right? If worship is fundamentally not just about singing words, but submitting our lives to Jesus, and one of the things that Jesus does is worship in community, invite us into community, what holds you back from that reality? What is one thing that holds you back? Is it wounding in the past or worship? Is it whatever? What is it that holds you back? And I just invite you as we end our worship to just prayerfully bring that barrier to the person of Jesus. And we're not just doing this to digest information. We're doing this because we want to be fully submitted to the person of Jesus. Part of doing that is taking those barriers and bringing them into his presence. I'm just going to pray for us as we enter into this time. Lord, we are broken creatures. And God, we know that we need you and we need each other, but God, it is not always easy. So God, I do ask in this moment that your grace would come and power, that your presence would be here. God, you would help us in our repentance. God, in in our just willingness to turn back to you, God, to figure out what does it look like to move forward? God, speak to us. May we hear your invitation. God, we don't want to try harder. We want to submit at deeper levels. Help us to submit deeper to your plan for flourishing, to your plan for formation, to your plan for witnessing to the world. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We want to know you. Come, Lord Jesus.